Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, the Washington State Redistricting Commission releases its proposed maps, and already accusations of gerrymandering are being flown. The Seattle City Council again makes it more difficult for landlords and easier for renters. Plus, are the United States spiraling towards collapse? We'll have two authors with two different perspectives a little later on. And the Washington State Legislature loses one of its longest-serving members. But first, Pramila Jayapal of the 7th Congressional District, which encompasses Seattle, has only been in Congress for a few years. She's just starting her third term, but she's exercising a lot of power as chair of the House Progressive Caucus, and she's threatening to torpedo the Biden infrastructure plan if she doesn't get a vote on one of the progressives' biggest bills, H.R. 3. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C., and this week she sat in for hours in the Oval Office with President Joe Biden and doesn't look like they came to an agreement well i don't know that they did or they didn't because late in the day on thursday we heard from house leadership the democrats that uh, they've reached what they call a a blueprint or an outline for this new extended infrastructure plan the one that has extended education for preschool and also past high school for more medical benefits everything but the kitchen sink uh, that progressives want and republicans do not saying it's too expensive at 3.5 trillion so she may have gotten what she wanted but whether it actually gets passed is a whole different thing because uh, that is still in doubt and there's one person in the senate and that's joe manchin the, the moderate democrat from west virginia who may still say yeah it's too expensive i'm not going to vote for it so it doesn't really matter what happens in the house this thing could die in the senate congresswoman jayapal is basically holding the other infrastructure bill the one that overwhelmingly passed in the senate with Republican and Democrat votes. That is roads, bridges, broadband, all the things that everyone says, yeah, we got to get this stuff fixed. And it, it probably should pass in the House pretty easily, except the progressives in the House are basically using that as leverage, saying, if you don't give us what we want, all that extra spending for child care and health care, education, that kind of stuff, we're going to kill this other bill. And then the bottom line would be pretty much the entire Joe Biden agenda is just thrown out in the trash because there's not a whole lot of time for them to pass anything else before the midterms. You mentioned the infrastructure bill passed with significant bipartisan support in the Senate. Does Nancy Pelosi really need Jayapal and the Progressive Caucus in order to pass it if she gets enough Republican votes? Yes. Well, she's not going to get any Republican votes because, and there's a whole different reason for it. Even if Republicans want it in the House, they want more badly for the $3.5 trillion other infrastructure bill to just crash and burn. They're basically going to go along with these uh, progressive Democrats to uh, kill this bill because they don't want to do anything to help the Democrats. So Nancy Pelosi cannot afford to lose three votes. Three votes is all she can lose in her caucus. If she does that, nothing can pass on this bill. The progressive wing has about 50 votes. So if all of those 50 votes say we're not going to do anything, the Democrats essentially don't have a majority in the House anymore. So does it seem like either side is going to blink here? Well, (laughs) that's what a good game of poker is about. We don't know. You know, and then uh, Joe Biden at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue is kind of like Captain Kirk and and Spock in Star Trek playing that three-dimensional chess game. Remember that where they had all the pieces on different levels and you had to figure out how to move these pieces in three different ways and still win the game? And it always seemed impossible. Well, it at least 
from this point, it does seem impossible unless there's some miraculous way that he and, and the leaders in the Democratic Party inside the House and Senate have found a way to make everyone happy. And it, up to this point, it doesn't seem like there is a way to do that. Politically, this can't be a good move for Jayapal because she risks torpedoing a huge victory for the Democrats. Well, we'll see. I mean... Look, the progressives have always said, look, we've always kind of said, we'll do it later, we'll do it later, we'll do it later. And I think in large part, they look at this now as their only opportunity because if they lose the majority in the House and the Senate in the midterm elections, they're back out in the wilderness for a long time. So they see this as their only time to really turn up the pressure and use the leverage they have. How unusual is it for someone like Pramila Jayapal, who's only just now starting her third term, essentially very new in Congress, to be commanding the authority of, of 50 proxy votes. Well, it's not just her. She may be the leader of that of that caucus, but there are many members of that progressive caucus that feel just as strongly as she does, and they don't have any problem with torpedoing this thing. So it's, it's really just a bunch of like-minded folks saying, look, we have been wanting to get these progressive issues out there, uh, extended child care help, extended health care benefits, extended education for decades, and we've not been able to do it. This is the closest we've ever been, and we're not going to give up now. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Thanks. Staying in Washington, the U.S. House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol has subpoena powers, and now it's using them. Catherine Falders is covering it for ABC News and spoke with Como's Taylor Van Syce. Catherine, who's getting a subpoena? So these are the first subpoenas uh, to go out from that January 6th committee. There were four to advisors and associates to former President Trump. Uh, the names that we have here are the former White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, the former White House Deputy Chief of Staff, Dan Scavino, former Defense Department official named Cash Patel, and a former Trump advisor, Steve Bannon. And look, so these are the four people who the committee at this point wants to speak to. This isn't limited to any more being sent out. We've heard some other names that the committee wants to speak to, too. So this is essentially the first round. And look, they've given them a deadline in these subpoenas. They want to talk to them. They want them to provide documents by October 7th. And then for all witnesses uh, to appear for closed-door depositions on October 14th and 15th. Now, the witnesses haven't uh, responded yet to these subpoenas, but where this could get um, a bit in the weeds and and dicey behind the scenes is if they decide to uh, say, no, thank you, I'm not showing up, and then... What happens uh, from there? Are they held in contempt of Congress? Does the Biden DOJ weigh in? Um, that's kind of all to be determined here. But these are at least the first four. They represent a significant escalation, at least for the investigative um, elements of this committee. And uh, we'll just have to see uh, what happens from here. One of the questions that I have not been able to find an answer to, and maybe you can help me sort this out, is whether or not, now that President Trump is out of the White House, mm-hmm. these people could say, no, I'm invoking presidential privilege, because at the time they were working for the White House, even if they're not in that job right now. It's an interesting question, and it's also a bit complicated. We dealt a lot with this when Trump was president with former officials. But the reality is the former president has said that he's going to claim privilege over uh, over these individuals. Uh, I would remind our listeners that Steve Bannon, while he did work in the White House at one point, he was just uh, an advisor to the president on the outside, was not working in the White House during January 6th. But, uh, look, I think... It gets a bit complicated here because on the one hand, sure, the president can say that these individuals are protected by executive privilege. They're talking about um, inner workings of of the White House, and, and that should be protected. And I think 
know, what's happening behind the scenes here, at least from the Biden White House and from the Biden Department of Justice, is I think there is some hesitation uh, to say, sure, just take any official, any senior advisor uh, to the White House and, and haul them up to Capitol Hill to speak about whatever it may be. So, again, I think the privilege element of it um, will either be litigated in court, like you remember it was with the former White House counsel, Don McGahn, uh, who actually the Biden DOJ kind of had a, had a modest ruling on. Um, and, and we'll just have to see what this Department of Justice says about those privilege issues and what the current White House lawyers say about it. So the question of whether it is or whether it's not protected by privilege, it's not really a cut and dry answer of yes or no. It's We kind of just have to see how these different parties rule. Of course, the former president thinks that it is all protected by executive privilege. So we'll wait to hear from his lawyers and lawyers for these individuals as well. Well, at the very least, Catherine, you've made me feel a lot better about my own researching, but I, I couldn't find my own answer. ABC's Catherine right. Falders. No direct answer. No kidding. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today, Catherine. That's Como's Taylor Van Syce. Still to come, renters get even more protections from the Seattle City Council when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelo. Well, it seems like renters in Seattle are about to get even more protections, and the challenge of rent control could be headed to the courts here very soon. Joining me now, as almost always, is Como's Matt Markovich, and the Seattle City Council and their housing committee passed some controversial bills, or at least are looking at a couple of them this past week. Well, the committee did pass uh, almost in a 4-0 vote. Two controversial bills. One would extend the uh, notice that a landlord has to give its tenants for a rate increase. Currently, both city, county, and state law is that the minimum is 60 days. You have to give a two months mm-hmm. notice. Well, the c- committee passed a bill that was authored by Shama Sawant, council member Shama Sawant, to go from 60 days to 180 days. So that's six months that a landlord has to give, a minimum, has to give a rent increase, a notification of a rent increase. That's the first bill. The second bill may be even more controversial, which basically says if a landlord raises a rent more than 10%, then that landlord is obligated to help the tenant find a new place if they're not going to accept that rent increase. That landlord is obligated to help the tenant find a new place and pay first and last month's rent and a security deposit, which is basically three times a monthly rent. That's what the security deposit is pretty much a a one month's rent. Uh, for that tenant is putting the onus on the landlord to help the tenant find a new place and pay their basically move-in costs. So the council tends to have, as we've said, a lot more protections for renters. That's what they're passing. That seems to be who they're appealing to, uh, which sort of seems at least politically smart. A lot of people, in, and I would venture to guess most people in the city of Seattle are probably renters and not property owners themselves. Yeah, much of the dismay of the of, to the uh, landlords, a lot of this legislation, like you said, is geared toward renters. And um, in the city, you know, there is no renters union. It's a very pro-union town, but there's no specific renters union that can lobby and negotiate rents mm-hmm. on behalf of all the renters well, versus would, landlords. Would a, a renters union even be effective? Because really the only tool that collective bargaining has is the threat of a strike. And what would renters do? Just not pay? Not pay? Yeah, I mean, that could be that could be one way. I mean, that's an obvious one. Uh, the so, so the council has taken it, this current council for the last several years has taken its uh, felt its role as a leader to pass this type of legislation. 
And so, but there was some caveats and at least uh, attempts to pre, uh, uh, differentiate what kind of landlord we're talking about here. Councilmember Alex Peterson proposed that the small landlords, people own less than five units, be exempt from that six-month rule. So someone like renting a backyard cottage or yeah, something like yeah, that. Or yeah. just one particular house. But the council committee decided, no, they want it applicable to all landlords, big and small. And, and this was just that six-month notice, not the pay of the first and last months right. and all of that. that was so separate. Council Member uh, Peterson uh, proposed another amendment to that this, the uh, first and last month's uh, advancement, the moving costs. He proposed it be limited to people who make 80% of the area median income. Now, that's a very important distinction here in Seattle. It's so expensive to live here, so they use this barometer of it called area median income mm-hmm. Uh, to uh, whether or not you're eligible for low-income housing. Which, for those who don't know, if you take all the people in the city of Seattle and the area median income is, well, half the people are making more than that, half the people yeah. in the city are making less than that. Yeah. It's not so, quite the average. That's yeah. a little different. But So technically, if you qualify, you qualify for low-income housing, according to the Seattle Housing Authority, if you make 80% of the AMI. Uh, the area median mm-hmm. income. Let me just tell you what some okay. of those thresholds are. And these are the same people that would be eligible now, if this goes all the way through the full council, um, eligible to receive this benefit of having your previous landlord pay for all your moving costs if the landlord raises it 10%. So if you are a single person, 80% of the AMI in the C- <coughs> city of Seattle is $63,350 a year. 63000 wow. for a single person. For a family of four, it's $90,500. Think about that. In that C- means the median income for a family of four is well over $100,000 yeah. in the city of Seattle. So if you make, if you're a family of four and make 90000 or less, technically you can apply for low-income housing in the city of Seattle. Wow. And so that... The the original legislation was written for a hundred percent. So if you were making a hundred five, whatever it was, of the which is the AMI for a family of four, then the re, the landlord would have to pay your first and last over a hundred thousand dollars. That was the cap uh, for that legislation. But Alex Peterson put in the eighty percent limit and got that passed. So that was amended. So now it's people who get uh, are eligible to get that first month first uh, last and security deposit if they make less than 80% of the AMI, which is $90,000 that, that That is crazy. But, I mean, that tells you a couple of things. One, just how incredibly expensive it has gotten to live in the city of Seattle. Mm-hmm. Two, how high the salaries are for people that are coming in, presumably mostly from Amazon and, and all the tech workers that are coming in. And then it shows you how difficult is it, it is to find housing. Right. I mean, obviously... You can argue with the methods of Shama Sawant and and her policies. You can argue if they're good or bad, but at least she's trying to do something to curb this skyrocketing cost of housing here in the city. Yes, and I guess the question is, do you put that on the onus of the landlords Mm -hmm. who are basically charging fair market value? The one numbers that were being used at that council meeting is that the average, and this is what I'm not, I haven't verified, but this is the, the, the council members were using these numbers. The average rent monthly rental for a two-bedroom in Seattle, whether it's a townhouse, house, whatever, $3,600 a month. For a one-bedroom was $2,700 a month. That's what the figures that the council was using that show how high everything is. So that's why 
that, that's why it relates to these AMI numbers. They're so high. And I was actually surprised. I'd, I'd have your audience, have our audience just think about how much money they make yeah. and think about, gosh, I thought I was doing pretty good. I actually can qualify for low-income housing in the city yeah. of Seattle now. I mean, it's just, so yes, there is high rents. There is an income, I don't know if the deficiency might be for a lot of people mm-hmm. here. These are really high salaries. But do you put the onus on the landlord, who many have not been able to raise their rent because they're afraid that people won't pay anyway because there's no eviction? So that's why you have landlords saying, I'm just going to sell to get out of here. So what do you do if you don't put it on the landlords? Who pays? I mean, this is, I mean, this, I'm, I'm not an economist and certainly not a real estate economist, but it seems like this whole trend of just skyrocketing prices will only spiral out of control. Ultimately, it's going to damage things, I would think. Well, yeah. I mean, and, and, and the cost of living in Seattle is going beyond the rate of inflation that the rest of the, company, uh, rest of the country faces. Uh, I don't have an answer. I'm not an economist. Nor did I run for political office, said I would come up with these answers and help that. And so that's what the city council is deciding to do, at least with rent. And there's also the element of rent control, which is another of Shama Sawant's initiatives that she's publicly said that this week she introduced her first draft of a rent control bill, which I should we should both preface as you know, mm-hmm. you can't. Ha- it's, the state has not allowed rent control for more than forty years. It's illegal in Washington State yeah, yeah. under state law. Yeah, so it's very simple. You can't have rent control. And and getting back to what we were just talking about, uh, I interviewed um, Roger Valdez, who is the director of growth for Seattle, who represents a lot of the corporate landlord interests in the city of Seattle, and asked him about what he thought about these. And he said that the element of first, last, and security, having the landlord pay, that's a form of rent control, because basically you're telling uh, landlords, hey, if you go over 10%, you're going to have to do all this. So they're going to keep their rent increases below 10%. So that's a form of rent control. So it sounds like Sawant's and the city council, by extension, are just daring the courts to strike it down. And that's what's happening. So uh, Councilmember Sawant is introducing in her committee a draft proposal that she hopes to have a final vote in the council in December. Looking at the draft, and again, this is draft, I was interested in what's the index they're going to use. Well, it's the rate of inflation, the historical rate of inflation. You can't raise your rent more than what the historical rate of inflation take this this year go back 10 years and average that out and that's the most you can raise rent I mean, that, in one year that sounds reasonable but once again you have a city council that doesn't matter whether things are illegal or not you know they they, they their ordinances get challenged in court all the time you have a federal judge yeah. overseeing a lot of some of these ordinances the, the philosophy is screw the law we're doing what we we're, want that's right they're going to do it they they're they're, they're a law by they're a legislative body they can make law i mean that's their their job but you, for this kind of thing you really have to lobby the state legislators to lift the ban on rent control i mean that's the most obvious way you can have rent control in the state of Washington, unless I'm missing something that you can pass something at a city level and then go in the courts and then eventually get to the state Supreme Court and the state Supreme Court, oh, guess what? It's as unconstitutional because there's no rent control in the state of Washington. Well, it's going to be a very short time before the lawyers get involved in this. Yes, that's right. Matt Markovich, thank you so much, as always. Mm-hmm. When we come back, check out the new maps. 
The process of redrawing Washington's legislative and congressional districts is underway. We get some insight on the process when the Como Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelo. Well, every 10 years, the decennial census is conducted, and that means hundreds, if not thousands, of enumerators go out, count the number of people in each state and the country, and then the results come back and we have to redistrict. What does that mean? Well, we're drawing the lines for the legislative and congressional districts. And here in Washington state, it is a nonpartisan, or I should say bipartisan effort. But there is some confusion over how that process goes. Joining me now is chair of the Washington State Redistricting Commission, and that's Sarah Augustine. And I guess first off, this week, you guys released the first set of maps, proposed maps for redistricting. How different are they? That's right. Um, well, I would say if you have a chance to take a look at our website, uh, Washington State Redistricting Commission, on the furthest to the right in the main page, there's a tab that says maps. And you can take a look at those draft maps and make that determination for yourself. One thing I will say is that each commissioner, each of our four voting commissioners, wrote a statement explaining um, the per- their, their thinking and their values behind the map that they drew. And so that really gives you a sense of what is motivating each of those four commissioners. So I would say because there are four of them, there are some um, similarities between the maps and there are some areas that are that are different. For people who may not understand the process, and, and correct me if I get this wrong here because this can get real complicated real quick, but each of the caucuses nominates someone to be on this commission, two Republicans, two Democrats, and then you as the chair who is a non-voting member, then they each propose their maps, and then you get together, and then you put them forward, and the state legislature says up or down, yeah or nay. So we will um, work together to settle on final maps, and there will only be two. There will be a legislative district map, and there will be a congressional district map that will be submitted by the entire commission. That is our mandate, um, and our deadline for to submit those maps is November 15. So there will only be two maps ultimately submitted. So where did we see the most change with the census data that came in in 2020? And I would say that there are changes across regions. And so um, I can pick out some regions here to talk about. So the 43rd is in the Puget Sound region. District 36 is in the Puget Sound region, but we're also seeing um, changes in districts um, three and four, which are on the east side of the state near the border with Idaho. And so is this population growth in each of these areas that we saw mostly, or is it shifting from one location to the other? So we have seen population growth in some districts, and we've also seen um, a decline of population in other districts. So are we seeing any particular area that's going to gain more representation or lose more representation? If you look in the Spokane region, we've seen loss of population there. And the Puget Sound region and some of the districts that I named there, you've seen a population growth. Regardless of who submits their maps, whether it's the Republican side or the Democratic side, there are rules that need to be followed. For example, it has to be a contiguous area. It can't be broken up into multiple uh, islands, I guess you could say. Uh, and you have also have to have sort of geographic areas of common interest. That's kind of the goal too, isn't it? That's right. We, we want to make sure that communities of interest are, are kept together. So in as much as it's practical, we want to coincide with local political subdivisions and recognize communities of interest. 
we want to keep um, the number of divided municipalities and counties to a minimum. And we want for uh, districts to be convenient, compact, and contiguous. And this is just straight out of the statute. So how difficult is that process? Because people live in various areas. There's a big division between rural and urban. That's got to be a bit of a challenge. Right. And I, I would say one of the things that's guiding this redistricting commission from, from the very beginning, back in January um, and February, as we were forming we determined the values that would guide the commission. And so at this time, as we enter into negotiating for final maps, we're really gonna depend on those values. And those values is they were set out um, by the commissioners themselves, which is for transparency, for um, the, the as many people to be heard in the process as possible and for negotiation in good faith. And so we will rely heavily on those as we go into the process of negotiating for final maps. The other thing that we saw in some of the press releases that came out from some of the members of the commission was, okay, we're increasing the number of competitive districts from, say, I'm just picking numbers, 5 to 10 or whatever it happens to be. Is there a necessity for making districts more competitive? And if so, why? So there are commissioners who in their statements with their draft maps cited that that forming competitive districts is a priority for them. And so as they head into negotiation, that's going to be a priority for them. And so um, within the law in Washington state, there is a a guidance uh, to preserve competitive districts, or I should say I preserve is probably the wrong word, but to ensure that districts um, uh, have the opportunity to be competitive. And the reason that that would be important uh, from my point of view is to ensure that each person that's voting has has the opportunity to cast a ballot that they feel is truly representing their interests. So if a person is living in a district um, where they feel that it is primarily represented by one party or the other, they might not feel like their vote counts. So um, ensuring that, that there are districts that are competitive, what you're doing is ensuring that individual voters uh, feel that their vote counts. All right, Sarah Augustine, chair of the Washington State Redistricting Commission, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And it didn't take long. Within hours of the draft maps being released, the Washington State Republican Party released a statement accusing Democrats of trying to gerrymander the districts, saying, quote, the maps are the definition of political hackery. However, half of the maps that were submitted were drafted by Republicans. Still to come, the fire and the fury of the American voter. Is the U.S. headed for its end when the Como Politicast continues after this? Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Here's Greg Hersholt and Manda Factor. America is a deeply divided nation, and it seems that many people on both sides of the political aisle are angry at each other. Let's go to our Como Newsline. Evan Osnos is a veteran foreign correspondent at The New Yorker. He's uh, with us this morning, out with a new book called Wildland, The Making of America's Fury. What can you point at that uh, was the turning point where everyone started getting so angry? <laughs> right? It feels that way. I, I mean, I think we all talk about it in, in different terms around the dinner table, the sense that we're just kind of at each other's throats, right, in public life. There's a lot of different ways in which this happened. And I'll give you one sort of fascinating example of it. Part of it has to do with our own industry, our own business. I mean, being in the media world, we've watched over the course of the last 50, 60 years as people have become sort of shorter and shorter attention span. I mean, the average soundbite on television has shrunk from 62 seconds to eight seconds. It's just a kind of dwindling of the attention span. 
And there's an amazing fact, too, which is that they did a study of local news not too long ago in which they found that very often local television news broadcasts will actually begin with an act of crime or sort of spectacular violence of some kind that's not local. It actually is farther away than it used to be when, when they were measuring this half a century ago. The result of that is that can, people can sometimes feel as if things in their own lives are more, more chaotic, more existentially at risk than they actually are. So our, you know, I sort of feel like I, to start this conversation, I got to put it up partly at my own feet and my own business. Are Americans being manipulated perhaps by outside forces? I mean, are, are Americans gullible today to believe stuff? Well, part of it is I don't think we've gotten more gullible. I think the tools of manipulation have gotten more sophisticated. Obviously, there was no social media 25 years ago. And now it's very hard when you go online to know who you're interacting with, who you're talking to, who is using pretty powerful instruments to be able to play on your emotions. I mean, give you a great example. There was an organization people may remember called Cambridge Analytica, which was a a for-profit business that popped up in order to help politicians exploit emotions like fear on Facebook. And the effect is real. I mean, they know this because if you go back and you look at how fear has operated in our public life, usually after a terrorist attack like the Oklahoma City bombings in the 1990s, levels of public fear were elevated for about 18 months. And then they then they went back down to normal. After 9-11, that didn't happen. They stayed elevated more than a decade and a half later. And the result was that it made people feel less and less together, and that has a compounding effect because then ultimately we feel like we're really pulling apart. I wish we had more time. We'll have to pick up the book. Thank you so much. Evan Osnos, a veteran foreign correspondent at The New Yorker. The book is Wildland, The Making of America's Fury. That's Como's Greg Herschelt and Manda Factor. Now with more on the topic, here's Elisa Jaffe. The author of the New York Times bestseller, The End of Power, is out with a new novel that follows the rise and fall of Venezuela, and he's found many comparisons between what happened there and what shocked Americans in the capital of our country. Joining us on the Como Newsline is the author of Two Spies in Caracas. Moises Naim is a columnist on international economics. And Moises, you have done so much research on Venezuela. What are the parallels that you notice between what happened in Venezuela and what happened in the United States on January 6th? Well, horror. Uh, we I watched it in horror as much of the world saw how the U.S. Capitol was being attacked. But uh, together with horror was a sense of deja vu. You know, I've seen this picture before, but I've seen it in Spanish and in Caracas in 2017, a mob uh, like the one that attacked the U.S. Capitol attacked the Venezuelan Capitol. And the purpose was the same. It was different, but the essence was to curtail the checks and balances that, that function. And you know, democracy is not just voting every four years. Democracy is a lot of very detailed daily operations where the division of power, where checks and balances matter. And autocrats these days tend to do whatever they can and to weaken and dilute, um, neutralize the constraints that they have on their power. 
it's easy for many people to think, oh, that could happen in a banana republic. But in a democracy like ours, could it collapse in a matter of a few years after everything you've studied? What we have seen in recent years and accelerated by the pandemic, what the pandemic has done is to show us that things, you know, ideas, institutions, ways of thinking that we thought were permanent and untouchable and unmovable. For example, American democracy, where with that, they're here to stay, they would not go anywhere. Well, and then we discovered that some things that we thought permanent uh, proven, proved to be transient and those that are that we thought were just temporary are permanent and one of the things that we need to make permanent again is the notion that American democracy is untouchable is defective, it's frustrating, it's messy is uh, has all kinds of defects but there's nothing better than that. Your book you, you did what 20 years of research on Venezuela to come up with this but then it's, it's fictional, it's two spies in Caracas tell us what did you learn in Venezuela that made you come up with these characters? Well, the book comes out of my frustration because I, I was covering Venezuela using the tools of the journalists, of the social scientists, you know, verify, check the data, fact check on all that. And by doing that, I felt that I was leaving out a very important part of the story that could not be verified, that could not be fact checked because it was clandestine. And that was the occupation, the stealthy occupation of Venezuela by Cuba. And that is an interesting story in itself, how Fidel Castro managed to um, become the, the, the counselor, the father figure, the guide uh, to uh, Hugo Chavez, the, the, the president uh, in Venezuela. And so I decided that I was going to tell the story as I think it unfolded, even if I could not verify it. And I called it a novel. And this is the novel of how the wealthiest, uh, the, one of the wealthiest developing countries in the world became one of the poorest. How did that happen without a uh, um, um, big, uh, huge natural disaster, all man-made? And how a bankrupt island in the Caribbean was able to occupy and call the shots in what was uh, one of the most important uh, functioning democracies in the Western Hemisphere. Moises Naim, the author of Two Spies in Caracas. Thank you for being with us. That's Como's Elisa Jaffe. Still to come, Lorena Gonzalez's controversial plan to deal with the Seattle homeless crisis when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. An 80-year-old man is recovering after he was attacked while visiting Seattle. It happened last weekend on North Capitol Hill while David Rajicek was visiting from Chicago. Police say he and his family were out for a walk when a man suddenly tackled him and he landed face down on the sidewalk, breaking his nose and dislocating his shoulder. His daughter-in-law chased after the attacker until he jumped over a fence. I was born here, grew up here, and I've never seen Seattle so dangerous. Now the attacker disappeared into a wooded area near a homeless encampment. And if elected mayor of Seattle, Lorena Gonzalez vows not to clear out those dangerous homeless encampments. That's part of her newly released plan to deal with the homeless crisis. Now you can see those encampments everywhere, set up on public rights of way in violation of ordinances and anti-camping statutes. And if Gonzalez is elected, she says the city's clearing of these often dangerous encampments will cease. I am not, as mayor, going to forcibly remove people 
out of one public space and shift the issue to another public space. In short, under a Gonzalez administration, the encampments will stay. Gonzalez says she will instead focus on getting people into housing and other services. Now, her opponent, Bruce Harrell, has adopted the Compassion Seattle policies, which include outreach and the clearing of dangerous encampments. He says people are suffering because of a lack of action at City Hall and that Gonzalez's plan will not make parks and sidewalks safe. Meanwhile, the U.S. House of Representatives has passed a bill guaranteeing a woman's right to abortion, and a Washington lawmaker is in the center of the fight. Como's Frank Lindsay has more. It's a Democratic effort to fight a wave of state legislation, including a bill out of Texas that restricts abortion access as early as six weeks. Washington Republican Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers spoke out against the bill, calling it extreme. Abortion for any reason, at any stage of pregnancy, until birth is not the will of the American people. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is calling for passage of the legislation. We will have today a vote for women, a vote for respect for women, a vote for decency. Frank Lindsay, Como News. The bill faces an intense Republican opposition in the Senate. Legislative Democrats are losing one of their longest-serving members. Senator Jeannie Darnell of Tacoma is resigning to take a position with the Department of Corrections. She was appointed to head the Women's Prison Division this week. Darnell has served in the state legislature since 2001. And finally, a Tacoma newspaper will pay a $15,000 fine after asking political candidates to pay for the paper's endorsement. The story from Como's Corwin Hake. The Washington State Public Disclosure Commission levied the fine against the Tacoma Weekly after a Tacoma resident complained about a 2020 advertising flyer in which the Weekly offered a paid package of election help. The News Tribune reports the flyer read, quote, let's get you elected and offered a $2,500 package including a cover story, an editorial, and a Tacoma Weekly endorsement. The pitch violates a state law against media outlets taking money to endorse a candidate. The Weekly later said the flyer went out by mistake. The News Tribune reports two 2020 candidates for Pierce County Council took the paper up on the offer. They've been fined $150 each. Corwin Hake, Como News. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other programs such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and many more. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelip. Thank you for listening and have a good week.